0: Looking back over a great year for space exploration, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. If you've been in deep cryogenic hibernation all year, well, you might be thankful you missed much of what's happened here on Earth. But that is not true for the world of space science, development, and exploration. In fact, space has been one of 2021's great success stories. We'll tell that story as six of my Planetary Society colleagues join me for our annual review, beginning with Society CEO Bill Nye. At the other end of the show waits Bruce Betts with another great What's Up review of the night sky, a random space fact this week in space history, and a new space trivia contest, of course. I can always recommend our free weekly newsletter, The Downlink, but this week I'll direct you first to the latest issue of our wonderful quarterly magazine, The Planetary Report. Why? Because it does what we can't do on the radio or in a podcast. It proudly displays our favorite space images from 2021, along with a great beginner's guide to night sky photography. There's more, but my favorite feature is an interview with my first boss at the Society. Charlene Anderson was also the first person hired by our three founders. She created with them the Planetary Report and served for many years as our associate director. Our members received the printed version, but the free digital edition of the Planetary Report is available to all at planetary.org planetary report. Bill, happy new year to you and happy new era of astronomy. I hope as uh, that big new telescope unfolds, I really wanted to get you on the show, not just to help us close out the year, but to help us celebrate the beginning of this new mission of discovery, the James Webb Space Telescope.
1: It's fantastic, everybody. So hearken to our founder at the Planetary Society, one of our founders, Bruce Murray. He uh, talked all the time about the so-called unknown horizon. So you might say, what is James Webb going to discover? Well, it's going to go, it's going to look at light coming from the most distant reaches of the universe that we know of. It's a time machine looking back in time. And these are wonderful things. It's going to fill in paragraphs in the story of our solar system. These are all wonderful astronomical turns of phrase. But it's ultimately, what are you all going to find with this telescope? We don't know. That's why we built it, to see what's out there. And so everybody, it really is an unknown thing, but it is the next logical step in cosmology or cosmological exploration in astrophysics and looking farther and deeper into the past.
0: Thank you. I suspect in the conversation I'm about to have with a bunch of our colleagues that we're going to talk about what a great year it has been for planetary science. And if you would like to address that, because I think it's also been a good year for the Planetary Society.
1: Well, we've had a great year at the society, even though there's this doggone pandemic, we've grown thank you out there, for uh, your support of the Planetary Society. We have at last a microphone on Mars, mm. uh, And that's from 20-plus years of work. You know, I was a member when the Mars microphone was proposed in the 1980s and then it got put on the Mars polar lander which became the Mars crash into the surface of Martian south polar and so there is already there was already a microphone on Mars unfortunately <laughs> crashed in 1999 curiosity rover is still doing amazing stuff the perseverance rover is doing amazing things the ingenuity helicopter mm. everybody you all we all might take it for granted it's been the holidays Gift giving season. Many of you received a drone. You got a drone as a gift, and now you're taking pictures of your neighborhood from the sky. And you say, Oh, this is great. This has all worked out. Well, on Mars, there's no air. To get the rotors to support the weight of this extremely lightweight spacecraft in very, very thin air, it's got to run at like Mach 0.6. It's like it's got to be just whirring all the time, and it worked. The thing takes extraordinary pictures. And, you know, you talk to any geologist, first of all, they want to know what the rocks look like. They want to know what's inside the rock. And they also want to know where to go. They want what they call mobility. They want to be able to go from where they are to where they see a cool or interesting set of rocks to go examine them. And so everybody, it is very reasonable. I'm not guaranteeing it, but it's very reasonable that in the next decade, We'll have samples back from Mars. So in the next decade and a half, somebody will have found evidence of life on Mars. They'll have found a rock with fossilized Martian pond scum <laughs> in it. And this will change everybody's view of what it means to be a living thing. Every, it will, the world will change. It's a very exciting time. And this year has been an exciting time in space exploration. Meanwhile, Juno spacecraft out of Jupiter is finding new, amazing stuff about what goes on in the middle, uh, the core of Jupiter. You would say, well, how does this affect me? Well, people have wondered, is there such a thing as metallic hydrogen in large quantities? And by that, I mean the size of the Earth's moon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What does that mean? How does that stuff behave? In other words, it's not like a metal that you and I might be familiar with. Maybe it has this other extraordinary properties. And then maybe, I'm just making this up, but maybe it will lead to fusion here on Earth because we'll understand the properties of hydrogen and protons that much better. You just don't know what you're gonna find. And for sure, the uh, Europa Clipper is on the books. It's gonna fly to Europa, the moon of Jupiter with twice as much seawater as the Earth. Who knows what we're gonna find there? Are there living things like the deep ocean vents here on Earth? whoa dude (laughs) anyway these are extraordinary but not out of the question ideas that are worth pursuing and i remind everybody the cost of planetary missions is so low compared to all the other stuff we spend our intellect and treasure on spend intellect apply our intellect and spend our treasure on you guys thank you all you guys my listeners, Matt's listeners, thank you for your support. It's been an extraordinary year. If you're listening and you're enjoying this podcast and you're for some reason not a member of the Planetary Society, well, get on board, people, Uh, because we give you access to the people who make the decisions. We had another great year of engaging the public with members of the U.S. Congress and Senate. By doing it virtually, we had more people from more states engaged, in a sense, more directly than actually being there the way we were a couple of years ago. And when the pandemic resolves, we will be back. By that, I mean, we'll be back in the city of Washington, D.C., and we will go from office to office and really tell the, our representatives what we are interested in. It's a big doggone deal, everybody. It's been a big year, Matt. Back to you, as they
0: say. It has been a terrific year. I am uh, thrilled to have spent it with you and all of our colleagues, Bill. And I look forward to another turn around the sun. Maybe, maybe we'll have a few. And, and to that great moment when we discover that uh, we, we answer that second of your questions and discover that we're not alone.
1: So everybody, if you're out there, these are the two questions that Bruce Murray used to ask and Luke Friedman. Are we alone in the universe? And where did we come from? To answer those questions, you've got to explore space. Our own light sail, too which is in orbit right now and still taking amazing pictures and still demonstrating that if you figure out how to fly it, as the team has done, you can keep the thing aloft an extra two years, like (laughs) far beyond its original mission. So for you planetary society members and listeners everywhere, whether you're members or not, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's get out there and change the world.
0: Thank you, Bill. We'll return to light sail when we bring Bruce in for uh... This week's edition of What's Up.
1: Hey, ask him what's going on. One boom didn't, one boom has got a kink in it. Okay. And do, do you know why? No. Nobody knows why. <laughs> and so that's that's why, why it's worth investigating to try to understand it. All right, you guys. Happy New Year. Thank you all for your support.
0: Happy New Year, Bill. That is the CEO of the Planetary Society, Bill Nye. We've got a lot to share today, so let's go straight to my conversation with four more of my talented colleagues. You've heard them before on Planetary Radio. Editorial Director Jason Davis, Senior Space Policy Advisor and Chief Advocate Casey Dreyer, Communication Strategy and Canadian Space Policy Advisor Kate Howells, and Editor Ray Pauletta. We gathered around a virtual water cooler on Monday, December 26th. Welcome, one and all. I know that you are all celebrating just as I have been. I mean, now that people are hearing this when it's published, the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, has been up there, and at least as we speak, everything's going great. And so, yay, everybody!
2: Yay!
3: yay. Thank goodness! <laughs> great job, little telescope.
0: Casey, you probably know better than anybody what it's, uh, at least in this group, what it has taken to get to this point with this big telescope. It's quite a milestone, isn't it?
4: I mean, this is literally a -a once-in-a-generation event that we've witnessed. It has taken a quarter of a century to build and launch this incredible capability. And as I keep emphasizing to people, this isn't just like slapping two Hubble's together and making a better telescope. It's fundamentally going to provide a new pathway to insight to the earliest periods of the cosmos and to other areas of of the universe that we just literally cannot get from existing tools. There's a reason why it took so long and cost so much to build this, because it's a fundamentally new technology. So it's going to be truly uh, game changing in terms of how we view the cosmos.
0: It was a very, very busy year, and we have a lot to cover. And so we'll do this in a little bit of a round robin. Jason, let's go to you first for a busy year at Mars, especially for uh, stuff coming down to the surface, but uh, in orbit as well. To me, this was the biggest
5: event of the year until the final five days of the year when (laughs) JWST just completely overshadowed everything else, uh, rightfully so earlier in the year, we had uh, three new Mars missions uh, arrive at Mars. And that was uh, a really big milestone. It was the first time three countries, three different countries had launched three different missions during the same launch window opportunity. NASA's Perseverance rover, um, which is uh, its next gigantic SUV sized rover. That one's a big mission because it officially starts the process for sample return. Uh, it's going to be collecting uh, samples and you know leaving them for future missions to collect. And we got some amazing imagery from uh, Perseverance as it landed. Some cool cameras that took pictures of its parachute and its uh, jetpack and, and all of that. Around the same time, we also had Tianwen-1 uh, arrive at Mars, and that's China's new Mars mission. Um, nobody has ever been successful on their first try the way that uh, China was. Just really pulled it off really well. Sent back some incredible pictures of its own and is now um, exploring uh, Utopia Planitia, which is the same area of Mars that NASA's Viking uh, missions originally explored. And then you also had uh, HOPE, the uh, the UAE's, the United Arab Emirates' Mars mission. It was their first mission uh, in partnership with some U.S. universities. They put an orbiter uh, in orbit around Mars, and that's going to look at the climate of Mars uh, over time to see how uh, try to build this holistic picture of Mars' atmosphere. So really big uh, Mars here earlier in the year. Kate Howells, not
0: surprisingly, we were celebrating the landing of Perseverance, but also these other missions uh, that arrived at Mars and and the ones that were already there. Uh, Tell us about that big celebration early in 2021.
2: Yeah, so the Planetary Society has a history, a tradition, I would say, of when there's some huge monumental moment in space exploration, like a rover landing on another planet, uh, we tend to throw a party and we call these Planet Fest. Normally, in the, in the past, we've done these in person, and I think almost always, if not always, uh, in Pasadena, California, where we're headquartered. But this time, because of the pandemic, we had an entirely virtual celebration, which I think wound up being... Kind of a blessing in disguise. I think people were disappointed not to be able to get together in person and you know party if like dance in celebration when the, the <laughs> rover lands. But um, being able to do it virtually meant that people around the world could take part, and we were able to bring in a lot of speakers that I think we wouldn't have been able to get if we were doing something in person. So we had a pretty epic two-day celebration. Uh, We had over 1,500 people take part all together virtually, which was just phenomenal. Um, We had 61 experts talking during 21 different sessions. So it was kind of like this big conference and people could tune in live, ask their questions. All of the video recordings are still available on our YouTube channel. So anybody can go and watch them, learn a ton about Mars exploration, you know, science fiction, video games, um, all kinds of stuff related to space exploration. And then we had a live watch party for the actual landing of the Perseverance rover, uh, which was very, very exciting. So it was great to be able to mark All of these arrivals at Mars, um, the sort of new era of Mars exploration with uh, new countries taking part and this uh, incredible new rover, um, being able to celebrate all of that with people around the world was just fantastic.
0: Lest anybody think that we are totally and only devoted to Mars, ignore the t-shirt that I'm wearing, my Mars (laughs) uh, rover t-shirt. Let's go to Ray Pauletta. Ray, tell us about a couple of other places that we're in the process either of exploring or preparing to explore. Uh, Juno and and Bepi Colombo.
3: Yeah, so just a just a hop, skip, and a jump away from Mars. You know, no <laughs> biggie. Uh, <laughs> we've got Juno still out there. I mean, it's amazing to think that it launched in twenty eleven and it is still kicking. We are still getting scientific information and amazing pictures back. And this year, it did not disappoint. Just before it wrapped its primary mission in July of twenty twenty one in June, it took the most stunning picture of Ganymede I think I've ever seen. I think a lot of us probably consider it to be one of our favorite space pictures of the year. It's the closest view that we've gotten of Ganymede, the largest moon in our solar system for the last 20 years. It's just amazing. It kind of looks like a big jack-o'-lantern that got maybe pushed over a bit. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe some people could say it looks like a bowling ball, but you can see all sorts of cool craters. I want to think it's a pumpkin like a jack-o'-lantern because I'm a space goth. I like Halloween. <laughs> but that's, you know, I'm looking towards seeing what Juno does next in this uh, extended mission where it's going to do all its side quests and bonus features, going to all the different moons of Jupiter and seeing a few of the the really cool ones.
0: You know, it occurs to me that we uh, didn't put in our little outline here uh, the mission that's headed toward Jupiter to explore those uh, icy moons. Is
5: anybody able to say a word or two about JUICE? JUICE, the Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer. It's an ESA mission from the European Space Agency. And I believe we just heard that it got pushed back until 2023 at this point. They're looking at a launch opportunity around then. Anyway, whenever it launches, yeah, it's going to go into Jupiter orbit first, and then it's going to slowly spiral in and explore the outer three moons and make some really close uh, passes of those and really try to unpack uh, in a way that no other mission has done before, um, really try to see what's going on with their surfaces and maybe try to determine whether they have subsurface oceans or get some more data on that. Yeah, that'll be a really cool mission happening uh, just a couple uh, years before Clipper launches NASA's Europa Clipper mission. So some good signs to come.
0: And maybe if they get lucky, fly through a plume or two. Ray, back to you and back to Mercury.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, who else is doing it like Colombo right now, right? Like nobody. Um, it's really cool to see Colombo on its way to Mercury after it performed the second of two Venus flybys this year. It'll need all the help it can get so it can get on its way to the planet. It took some really cool pictures of Venus, though. It looks like a almost like a radioactive cue ball from a distance. Like it's really, really bright. So you couldn't get that many amazing, you know, up close close and personal details, but it was still cool to see the planet. I think what's next for BepiColombo is it's got to do six Mercury flybys before it actually can enter the correct orbit. So we'll be watching and cheering it on from afar.
0: Speaking of in there close by the sun, how about flying right into the sun's atmosphere? I got to throw you another curve because another (laughs) one we didn't talk about is the Parker Solar Probe, which had those just... Good Lord, mind-bogglingly stunning, that video flying through the corona. I mean, what'd you guys think?
3: That video was just like one of the coolest things I've seen all year, probably in years. I mean, seeing the Milky Way through the sun's corona, it's like, I don't even think my brain could have understood that sentence like
2: 10 years ago. I could not have fathomed that coming to life. (laughs) Another thing I loved about that is, I mean, it really captured people's imaginations. Um, I know all of us, we're, we're always talking about space to all of our friends and family, regardless of whether they're interested in hearing about it. But <laughs> <So> when <cool. laughs> I shared the video uh, of the Parker Solar Probe footage, everybody I know who normally is pretty quiet when I post space stuff was piping up with questions and just expressing their amazement at what they were seeing. Not only is it amazement at, at you know that this is what the sun's corona looks like, but also that humans have constructed a craft that can get that close to the sun, that can touch the sun, that's astonishing and very impressive. And I I know one of the things that we all love about space exploration is the human ingenuity that makes all of it possible. So I think that was a really great example of just a very, very impressive mission doing something really cool that is very easy to appreciate. Let's stick with that theme of
0: uh, generating all kinds of interest from our Our friends and family who maybe get tired of us talking about space, because if you're like me, the big thing that they all wanted to talk about was uh, billionaires going into space uh, and other people as well, as well as research. So, Casey, I want to I want to turn to you. Is this do you think we've now seen finally the real start of, uh, of commercial space tourism?
4: Yeah, we saw three different companies provide private access to space for three different, well, multiple different crews, with one company launching three different times in one year, Blue Origin. I look back, so Spaceship One uh, from Bhut Rutan launched in 2004 and won the X Prize. It wasn't until 2021 this year that we saw Virgin Galactic actually begin its commercial operations for commercial customers, and it only flew once. It was a long time coming. This is what has been promised for a long time, and we're just starting to see the realization and also the kind of emerging complexities of the overall increase in access to space means there's all types of people now going into space that we have classically not associated with. And I think that's an interesting thing to see culturally, but also more broadly, we're seeing you know companies like SpaceX not just do suborbital flights, but orbital flights with the Inspiration 4 crew. And we will soon theoretically see tourist flight around the moon, also on a Dragon. In addition, we have the Russians launching multiple private crews to the space station, including a film crew to uh, beat Tom Cruise, the first uh, professional film crew in space uh, as part of their movie. So we're seeing this big burst of activity. The big question is how long and how sustainable is this going to be? Obviously, some of these first crews are not necessarily paying customers. They're, they're high profile owners of the of the capital, so to speak. And then we are also seeing a lot of theoretically kind of promotional activities like sending William Shatner up in the space we don't believe he necessarily paid a full ticket price. So, you know, we're seeing the start of this capability. And I think, again, this is one of the reasons why I think this next decade in space is going to be so profoundly interesting, because it's in its sense, a historical. we do not have a historical comparison to draw from to help us understand what is going to be happening. And so seeing the start of Multiple commercial tourist flights into space this year to me is really this opening period of this unpredictable new frontier that we're seeing unfold before
0: us. To say nothing of everybody from high schools to small plucky nonprofits uh, sending their own CubeSats up and uh, and and keeping them up there for a couple of years—something we'll be talking with Bruce Betts about when we. Uh, talk about the status of Light Sail 2, which is uh, still sailing overhead. Let's turn back to uh, planetary science now. And Jason, come back to you and uh, talk about some notable successes uh, related to uh, visiting asteroids.
5: Yeah, one of my uh, favorite missions of the past few years, just on just the way it's very, um, it has a very can do spirit, a very unique way of doing things, has been the Hayabusa 2 mission. It just um, had all these neat little innovative tricks that it used to get uh, samples off of uh, asteroid Ryugu, including firing a metallic plate into the surface, which was, and watching the plume come up off of it, which was just one of the the neatest uh, ideas I've seen in a long time. It uh, returned its samples of asteroid Ryugu in December of 2020. However, we kind of considered an honorary 2021 event because (laughs) uh, our best of awards at the end of last year um, didn't account for it. And so we we included it in our best of awards for this year. Right now, after it dropped off its samples, um, it headed on to a couple other asteroids. It won't get there until closer to the end of this decade, but um, it has a couple more asteroids to explore. And then OSIRIS-REx, NASA's uh, asteroid sample collection mission, uh, it did successfully collect its uh, samples in October of last year. And uh, it stuck around for a little while. And in May of this year, it began its long journey back to Earth. It should arrive in uh, 2023 and drop the samples off for us. We heard a little bit about earlier this year that OSIRIS-REx might possibly be redirected on an extended mission to visit asteroid Apophis, which is uh, doing this really close flyby of Earth in um, April 2029. That hasn't been confirmed or approved yet, but it's something that uh, the mission team kind of discovered earlier this year, that yes, this trajectory might be possible after the uh, Earth drop-off. So fingers crossed, we'll get to see a really cool uh, mission to asteroid Apophis uh, towards the end of this decade as well.
0: Kate, okay, let's stick with uh, small bodies out there uh, near the Earth and and not so near the Earth with a, a couple of other uh, missions that got underway.
2: I love when a year like this has missions arriving at, at their destinations and missions launching and we kind of get this nice cadence. So we have some things to look forward to that launched this year. Um, the Lucy mission and the DART mission both launched, both very cool, very exciting, doing things that have never been done before. Uh, Lucy is one that I'm particularly fond of, and I gotta say, I didn't know how cool it was until I listened to the Planetary Radio episode about the mission, where I discovered all kinds of incredible things about this very cool little mission. It's heading out to the Jupiter Trojan asteroids, so it's asteroids that are in the same orbit as Jupiter, but actually so far away from Jupiter itself that they're I think the closest the spacecraft will ever be to Jupiter is when it launched or maybe when it does its first Earth flyby. because uh, Yeah, Jupiter I think that's orbit, what
0: we were told. Yeah.
2: Yeah, the Jupiter orbit is just so huge. So that's kind of cool and mind boggling to begin with. This little spacecraft is going to visit several asteroids over the course of many years. It doesn't arrive at its first asteroid, which isn't even one of the Jupiter Trojans. It's a main belt asteroid uh, in 2025. And then two years later in 27, it'll get to its first Trojan asteroid and over the course of its 12 year mission that it's got planned, it'll only actually be doing scientific observation of asteroids for a total of 24 hours. That's another tidbit I learned in that planetary radio episode. Everyone who hasn't heard it should go listen to it because it's such a killer episode. A mind boggling thing. Checks in the mail, Kate. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> 12 years of travel for 24 hours of science and it's and it's such important science that it's worth all of that waiting. It's such a cool mission. It's Once it's done its observations of the asteroids, it's going to continue orbiting the sun forever, basically. It's going to be out there presumably unless something happens for millions of years. And so one of the other things that I love about this mission is that it has a plaque on it and unlike the voyager and pioneer plaques that are intended for extraterrestrials to discover somewhere in interstellar space this one cuz it's staying in the solar system it's intended for far future humans to recover it and then find a sort of time capsule of earth at this time so it's that poetry that we love you know the 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 beautiful thoughtful visionary stuff of space exploration when we think about what it means that we're sending something out into the solar system that could be there for millions of years. So you gotta love that, but we do have quite a lot of waiting to do before Lucy starts delivering science back down to Earth. Uh, We have a sooner payoff for the DART mission, which launched this year and is going to be arriving uh, at its asteroid destination in September of 2022, so not too long to wait at all. And it is going to smash into a tiny moonlit asteroid that is orbiting a larger asteroid. And it's going to hit that moonlit and see if it can change the moonlit's orbit around the asteroid enough to be noticeable. And this will be our first time ever trying to change the trajectory of an asteroid. It's our first real demonstration of a planetary defense deflection technique so it's a huge step forward in developing our ability to protect our planet from impacts, uh, which is obviously very important. And I think it's going to be a cool mission. There's going to be um, a companion spacecraft that um, documents the impact. And so we can see what's happening. So all of that's going to be really fun. And we're going to get that payoff in 2022. So lots to look forward to there.
0: Yeah, that little companion, a little uh, Italian CubeSat. Hope that works out. And DART, of course, Double Asteroid Redirection Test. Casey, I'm going to go to you for a second, because this is, I won't say the culmination, but it is certainly something that the Planetary Society has been working toward for a very long time, right?
4: Yeah, there's two prongs of planetary defense, right? There's the active deflection, and then there's the detection aspect that we're also pushing for, too, with future missions like New Surveyor, which I would also add as an important marker this year, being approved for future development, officially becoming a, a project mission this year. So planetary defense, this is something just broadly to step back. This is the first planetary defense mission. And planetary defense missions are unique. They're not science missions. They're not human spaceflight missions. They're not even really technology demonstration missions. This is a new category of mission. And this is one of the reasons why it took so long to start seeing missions like this happen. They didn't have a place to be slotted into within NASA's existing structure. So we're seeing this development. We're seeing the, in a sense, the bureaucratic process work by creating a new home for these very specialized critically important types of missions and it's taken decades to really establish and convince people and also establish the science and importance behind this Of you know we forget too what i think uh, establishing that there is planetary threats from large asteroids we only started determining this 40 50 years ago really understanding the scope of the asteroids count out there in the last few decades this is all very new. And so this is NASA adapting to and also the U.S. Congress mandating responsibility to NASA in, in various pieces of legislation to do things like this. So uh, DART is this kickoff, I hope, of a, a very bright future of planetary defense missions and these very, again, specialized, dedicated missions to ensure our long-term survival, which, again, as Kate said, I think we take the bold stance as a good thing.
0: And how. Ray, back to you to uh, talk a little bit about what's still ahead of us, neglected sister no more, Venus, not good just for uh, giving a gravity boost, but uh, worthy of sending several new missions to.
3: Yes, Matt, I'm so excited for this. So the end of the decade, we are going to get some bonkers missions to (laughs) Venus. And all of us who are Venus fans have been waiting for this moment. There just hasn't been a mission like this to Venus before, and we're getting three unprecedented missions. It was announced back in June that uh, NASA is going to send two spacecraft, DaVinci Plus and Veritas, to uncover literally all of the secrets about Venus. They're set to launch sometime between 2028 and 2030. So, again, we are going to have to wait a little, but I think it'll be well worth the wait. We're supposed to learn more about Venus's uh, plate tectonics, or lack thereof. That's kind of a strange mystery of Venus. The Tesserae, which are just these extremely deformed regions, they kind kind of look like, you know, when you're like at an ice skating rink and like everyone's done ice skating, but you kind of look at the ground and it's all scratched up and wild. Like that's basically the Tesserae, but like on an actual planet. So it's gonna be really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Then we got news shortly after. Oh, and how could I forget? Sorry, I have to interrupt myself there. We're also going to learn about the potentially active volcanoes on Venus, It's just the best planet. It's so spicy. Like, I can't wait. (laughs) We also got news later about the European Space Agency sending its own mission called Envision, which is going to do some really cool high-resolution radar mapping. It's going to study the atmosphere, and I believe that launches in the early 2030s, but a firm date has not been set.
0: Casey, listening to all of this, one might be led to think that these are good times for planetary science and maybe for all of space science. Um, Tell us the current status of things briefly, as you often do on the monthly space policy edition of Planetary Radio, uh, but particularly looking at the end of the first year of the Biden administration.
4: Yeah, well, we've seen some really promising starts in terms of allocating resources for NASA science and NASA just in general. Uh, The Biden administration took power uh, this year in the United States and put out its first budget proposal for NASA for fiscal year 2022. It exceeded our recommended growth levels by a few percent, so it was, uh, 7% growth for NASA, record levels of funding for planetary science, uh, increases for Earth science, astrophysics. NASA science just does very well in this budget and has generally been you know, supported by Congress uh, as it has been so in the last few years. I think back to when I first started at the Planetary Society, when we were fighting this rearguard action to try to prevent cuts or, or to prevent cuts from being as bad as they were originally proposed. Now we're seeing continued growth, there's almost universal acceptance that NASA science is important and worth funding. And we're enabling all of these types of missions that we're talking about today, not just the ones that we're seeing finally happen, but as Ray was talking about, the ones that will be happening now, thanks to these long-term budget commitments from the past and current administrations and multiple types of US Congresses. So this is really good times for NASA science and it's enabling the types of stuff we wanted to see. It enables NASA to take risks with big missions like James Webb. It enables NASA to attempt to send humans back to the moon, to work with other companies, industry, and other nations to achieve that goal. And then also to you know really pursue these ambitious missions like Mars sample return, the Roman space telescope, and then these future commitments for long-term efforts to search for life in the universe. And none of this happens without the money to do it. The one thing that doesn't get cheaper with time is people's salaries, right? And, and people are at the core of enabling NASA science and NASA missions in general. You can't replace them. And that's why you cannot just do more with less. And so in space, you do more with more. And thankfully, we've been seeing the Biden administration support that.
0: Much more of our 2021 Space Review is just ahead here on Planetary Radio.
1: Hi, everybody. It's Bill. 2021 has brought so many thrilling advances in space exploration because of you, The Planetary Society has had a big impact on key missions like the Perseverance landing on Mars, including the microphone we've championed for years. Our extended LightSail 2 mission is helping NASA prepare three solar sail projects of its own. Now it's time to make 2022 even more successful. We've captured the world's attention, but there's so much more work to be done. When you invest in the Planetary Fund today, your donation will be matched up to $100,000 thanks to a generous member. Every dollar you give will go twice as far as we explore the worlds of our solar system and beyond, defend Earth from the impact of an asteroid or comet, and find life beyond Earth by making the search a space exploration priority. Will you help us launch into a new year? Please donate today. Visit planetary.org slash planetary fund. Thank you for your generous support.
0: I think we have time to to broaden the home world scope a little bit uh, because we are seeing so much happen around the world, including from nations that are still new to planetary science. I mean, Hope, uh, Jason, you mentioned its success from the United Arab Arab Emirates, which has now announced this even more ambitious asteroid mission that's a few years off. India, of course, with the MOM, the uh, Mars orbital what is it? Mars Orbital? I forget what the, what the uh, second M stands Mission. for. Mission. Thank you, Mars Orbital Mission, wouldn't you know. L- let's talk about some of our, our, our bigger partners, and more active partners. I don't know who can talk about ESA, but uh, Kate, we sure can turn to you to talk about what's happening in Canada with the uh, Canadian Space Agency.
2: Canada's space program is going strong. We've got a lot of commitments to participate in the Artemis program, returning humans to the moon and all of the uh, various components, like technological components that uh, play into that overall mission architecture. And a Canadian astronaut is slated to be on the first orbital mission, uh, not a moon landing, but orbiting the moon. And so uh, we're very excited about that. Canada has a long history of being a reliable contributor to international missions. And so we're seeing more of that. Uh, We've also got Canadian instruments on the the JWST mission. So really looking forward to highlighting and celebrating that we do what we can in Canada to remind Canadians that yes, we do have a space program, the Canadian Space Agency doesn't have the same name recognition as NASA yet. But we're working on that. Um, But anytime we can remind Canadians that we we all have uh, made it significant contributions to some of the most exciting missions happening out there. So it's really exciting to, to see stuff on the horizon for Canada and to celebrate what we've already accomplished. So yeah, I'd say things, things are looking bright for Canadian space policy.
0: And I know this is throwing all of you yet another curve, but uh, anybody who wants to chime in about activity by the European Space Agency and uh, how its funding of space science, planetary sciences is progressing. I mean, it's obviously come up uh, several times already in this conversation.
4: The Europeans have a very different process for allocating funds, and, and they have a, a certain amount of money for the European Space Agency allocated for science over time as a percentage of its budget. And so it's a much more stable, it's a much smaller budget overall. I think the European Space Agency's annual budget is in the six to $7 billion range total. And so their science budget is is a portion of that smaller than the US one, but they can do so much with it because they have this very long-term stability that allows them to do very tight planning and maximizes the overall commitments that they make. Uh, in addition to contributions by their member states over and above the minimum contributions that they all make to ESA. So we have seen actually a very big commitment from the European community with Mars sample return. That's probably the most important development that we've seen in the past few years, that they're coming in at a very high level. You know, Not only are they committing to ExoMars, which has turned out to be a roughly 2 billion euro uh, project that we'll hopefully see launch next year, but we're seeing with the Mars sample return, they're providing a fetch rover and the Earth return orbiter. These are not small projects. We're talking about a multi-billion euro commitment by them. And that's, again, on top of and above the minimum level of contributions for, for ESA itself. So we're seeing them really step up for that. We're seeing them step up with Hera. Uh, speaking of planetary defense, flying by asteroid Didymos after, a few years after the collision by DART to really characterize the impact crater and to help really refine those models of planetary defense and deflection capability. So they're putting in a lot of effort and support for this. And again, not to mention their large contribution to the uh, JWST, which just launched on an Ariane rocket. So we're seeing a lot of contributions from them. I would add uh, just broadly to the the whole astrophysics side of things, that their deep space telescopes uh, contributions. We're seeing, I think, a, a broad increase in funding, not necessarily the levels we're seeing in the US, but a continued commitment uh, that has been, again, really fundamentally enabling and making these smart partnerships. I think we're seeing similar commitments by the Japanese aerospace uh, industry as well. JAXA is launching their mission MMX to Phobos, a sample return. Uh, They're just really, really killing it in these small asteroid small body uh, missions the japanese have been really specializing in those and then also of course we're seeing china's incredible capabilities as jason mentioned at mars we're seeing continued commitments to the moon uh now announcing a second lunar sample return from the south pole of the moon additional lunar landing and more broad commitments to uh, planetary exploration in general
0: good times indeed Jason, take us up there one more time to that place where a little, that little outpost of humanity where people have been living for uh, over 20 years now. Uh, How was the year for the International Space Station?
5: It's safe to say that this is the year that NASA was able to fully realize the power of the International Space Station for, for research. They've been wanting the additional capability to get an extra crew member up there for a long time. They've been relying on uh, the Russian Soyuz to transport its astronauts. SpaceX launched the Crew-1 mission with two astronauts uh, back in 2020. Um, That crew came home in May of this year, and that was uh, very quickly followed by a second crew that was on the station from April to November. A third crewed uh, SpaceX Dragon mission launched in November, and that crew is still aboard right now. I would say it's a major win for NASA in terms of finally getting this capability up and running that they've been trying to get up and running since the end of the space shuttle program in 2011. At the same time, one of their astronauts, Mark Vande started a year-long mission. He went up on a Russian Soyuz, so um, we're continuing to see some uh, NASA astronauts flying aboard the Soyuz. He um, will be up there for about a year and even surpass uh, Scott Kelly for that uh, long-duration ISS mission. Uh, at the same time, Russia finally got its NACA module launched and installed. Um, they had been working on that for a very, very long time, and um, that module has been through a lot of problems on the ground. Uh, they finally got it into space. Um, there was a lot of drama as they got it docked to the station, and its thrusters began firing and uh, unexpectedly and knocked the ISS out of its correct orientation. Finally got all that under control, and that module is now um, uh, up and running uh, on the station for them as well. As uh, Casey had said, you know, the, we're getting these um, commercial tourism missions, or maybe tourism is not always the right word, uh, where we have the film crew come up and um, uh, shoot part of a movie on the space station. This is a Russian crew, director and an actor. So, um, yeah, really seeing a lot of activity at the ISS. It's, been, it's as busy as it's ever been right now. At the same time, China has done the same thing. Uh, its Tianhe core module launched back in April This is the core for their brand new space station. Uh, They sent their first crew up uh, from June to September. There's a new uh, crew in orbit right now. And in fact, they just went on a spacewalk. So um, China's really um, getting into the swing of things, too, with their space station.
0: A lot going on. And and I noted uh, uh, a cargo mission just went up with a whole bunch of new science for that national laboratory that uh, orbits over our heads. Let's now turn to pop culture, space in pop culture, which, Ray, is something that you suggested that we uh, add to this uh, conversation. I got to say, yesterday, I finished the ninth and last book in the Expanse series. Wow, what a finish for any of you who have not gone through it. I've been waiting for that book for a very long time. Uh, One heck of an ending Uh, pardon my French, Um, it was a pretty good year overall for uh, representations of space in uh, pop culture. Ray, you suggested the topic, so you want to get us going?
3: Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of the space pop culture moments maybe just snuck in at the end of the year. I'm thinking of Dune and uh, Don't Look Up specifically. I mean, and which I really loved both of them, by the way, but I feel like I have to give a very special shout out to Dune for providing me with my new soundtrack to my life. Um, Also, just like blowing my mind, man, like, I I didn't know anything about Dune going in. Like, I went into this movie knowing nothing about the lore. I just didn't know anything about it. And I came out Profoundly changed. In fact, I wanted my Halloween costume to be the shy Hulud so badly. I tried to make it happen. Like I was gonna buy one of those big, like hoop things that cats and children and stuff crawl through, and I was gonna put it over my head. <laughs> did not come to fruition, unfortunately. But there's always next year.
0: With big crystal teeth, no, no doubt that you'd glue into place. anybody yes. else uh, Anybody else have thoughts about Dune, or what else did you enjoy? Uh, where uh, pop culture uh, turned to outer space.
5: Yeah, I'll second Dune. I went and managed to see that in the theater. I, I had read, I've read maybe three of the books and I've seen the first movie, um, or at least one with uh, Patrick Stewart and Sting and everybody. And, um, you know, it was really satisfying to see. It was such kind of a meme, almost a meme movie. And uh, it wasn't really taken seriously um, outside of the the core niche of group of people who are really big Dune fans, and then going and seeing it in the theater. And I, I was just like, wow, they're, they're going for it. They're taking it seriously. They're going full. This is a very dramatic, epic uh, story that we're telling here. And I, I absolutely loved it. I just, I can't wait for the second part.
0: We got to turn to Don't Look Up. I know not all of you have seen it yet, Of course, we had that conversation with uh, the director, Adam McKay, and our friend Amy Meinzer, who was the science consultant uh, right here on Planetary Radio just a couple of weeks ago. I loved it. I don't think it's, it's done as well in theaters as I thought it deserved to do. But my God, has anybody ever seen, for those of you who've seen it, a movie that did such a good job of getting the science right?
3: I think it did a good job of getting the panic right more than anything. Uh Uh (laughs) I was like, hmm, this is the appropriate level of anxiety. I think we should all feel about, A, climate change, which the movie, I guess, was really an allegory about climate change. Yeah, I mean, from a planetary defense level, I thought it definitely hit all the right notes. And uh, I thought it was appropriately spooky and scary. And uh, there was a lot of laughs, too. I personally thought Jonah Hill was hysterical in that movie, like... I think he really for me he was the winner except for of course like Meryl Streep who like I'm obsessed with also so
2: <laughs> I thought
0: everybody and it was just great.
2: Yeah, um, oh. everyone. Yeah. Anybody else have any pop culture highlights uh, to bring up? I was just going to say I'm woefully behind on all the pop culture stuff. I didn't see Dune because I haven't been I haven't felt comfortable yet going back into theaters and I feel like it's a movie you have to see on a big screen, but I'm missing my chance. So I'm going to have to just watch it at home. I also was a huge fan of the David Lynch Dune. So I have to try to put that out of my mind and not compare the two when watching it. And I haven't seen don't look up yet, but I'm going to watch it with my family who are all gathered for the holidays still so that I can teach them about planetary defense. Cause that's, always going to be the angle is when there's a pop culture moment and you can use it to teach people about the true important stuff. That's what I I'll, I'll try to do. So I have lots to look forward to.
0: As I said to Amy Meinzer and Adam McKay, the only feature film I've ever seen that talked about the benefits of peer review. <laughs> it actually <laughs> is a it's a key point in the movie. Kate, I'm so glad to finally meet somebody else who actually kind of enjoyed the David Lynch film oh. as at least a, a noble effort.
2: I loved it. I was introduced to it, it as a undergraduate when I was, you know, late teens. I definitely joined that cult following. I've seen it a bunch of times. I just it's so bizarre. And I I appreciate what Jason said that, you know, it's good to see dune being taken seriously by this new movie, but I loved the the weird weird weirdness of the Lynch version. So, like I said, I just have to separate them in my mind and not compare them because it's definitely two different treatments.
0: So I would feel bad if I didn't at least mention our friend Andy Weir's great book, Project Hail Mary, which is absolutely outstanding. A laugh, a page, and probably a fascinating, uh, innovative idea per page. So good on you, Andy. Ray, did you want to close this out?
3: I did just want to mention one last thing for the Dune heads out there, which is, I guess, the the fan army that I've now made up. Um, it's a shame that we did not get Hodorowski's Dune, and I feel like we just need to mention that for a quick second because that would have been wild. And, like, we, I think it was, like, supposed to start like, Mick Jagger or, like, uh, David Bowie was supposed to be in, I think. Like, can you imagine?
2: Yeah. There's a really good documentary.
3: The doc is great. Highly yeah. recommend the documentary. Documentary
0: yeah. about that—that that never to be completed uh, production of Dune by that by that terrific director. Um, I, I, I got to say, I, I my wife when she said, "Well, is Sting in the new new Dune?" and I said, "No." She said, "Well, why would I want to see it?" So...
3: <laughs> <laughs> Love that
0: lightning round. We have about five minutes. Everybody, set. Uh, jump in as you will. Human Landing System Award Controversy. Casey, I guess we better start with you.
4: I think that was quite notable. NASA awarded the first contract for a lunar lander for humans in 50 years and was immediately challenged in court uh, by uh, Blue Origin as given to SpaceX. Blue Origin challenged it, delayed it for a bunch of time, and ended up giving it to SpaceX anyway. And so they succeeded in further delaying Artemis' uh, human return to the moon for no clear benefit of their own. You're, You're seeing represented in this type of activity, ego is now being clearly engaged in space exploration in addition to national symbolism. And so this is something we will get used to more going forward in the near future.
0: And maybe that's another positive sign of uh, of the progress that we've made. <laughs> uh, somewhat in connection with that, space launch system and other Artemis program delays, including the spacesuit, which We'll be talking about on this show next week with uh, one of the major contractors for that new moon suit.
5: It was absolutely stunning to see the space launch system finally stacked this year in the Vehicle Assembly building. That rocket, it's been through so much. People love it and people hate it. Um, But just seeing the sheer scale of that thing in in the VAB was really a sight to behold. Now it sounds like uh, one of the uh, engine controllers is bad for one of the engines, and we won't be able to uh, see it fly until March or April, possibly. So just another delay, wait a little bit longer to see that gigantic thing fly.
0: But then there's Starship from uh, Elon and uh, other commercial launchers that are proceeding. But we'll we'll stick with Starship for this uh, lightning round. There is a great cover on the uh, current issue of Ad Astra from our friends at uh, the National Space Society that shows these two giant rockets next to each other. It's a pure fantasy, of course, at the moment, but uh, who knows, maybe someday. Starship, look like we're going to maybe see it happen soon. Uh, Going to space, at least.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those... A historical moments that we're seeing. This is a super heavy launcher that could fundamentally transform access to space, or it could not. It could, it could fail, right? And I think we should not dismiss the intense technological challenge it will take to build a functional, reliable, super heavy lift, reusable two-stage spacecraft, but we shouldn't throw it away either. They have probably some of the best people in the world working on it. It's one of these issues that it could be profoundly exciting, but we also need to temper our expectations and understand that this is still operating in the realm of physical realities that have limitations and and issues just like everyone else. But what's so exciting about it is that they're doing it all in the open, and it seems to be happening so rapidly. And it is a fascinating contrast to the more staid process of the SLS construction, where, again, the fundamental difference is, When NASA does a project like the SLS, it's fundamentally a NASA project, even though Boeing's building it, they have the burden of national symbolism. They have to deliver, and that makes it a very conservative development process. It's easier to take the hit in the development as long as the ultimate thing succeeds. When you have a company doing a project, and particularly the way that SpaceX has set it up, they're allowed and allow themselves to fail. And they can fail publicly. And that's okay. They don't get Congress breathing down their neck if that happens. That gives them a lot of freedom to experiment and try things out. And we're seeing, again, the two things really compared to each other is very interesting uh, thing to look at. And Starship, again, we will see which one will launch first, uh, Starship or SLS in 2022.
0: Europa Clipper got a quick mention uh, earlier in our conversation. And were any of you also relieved uh, when we saw that it's uh, going to head out toward Jupiter on top of a Falcon Heavy and won't have to wait for a Space Launch System rocket and SLS? Ray?
3: I think it was the right call. It's going to just be an easier timeline, to be honest. Um, I'm super excited for that mission, by the way. Remembering correctly, it's like 2024 that it launches, right? So we still have a couple more years. Yeah. No one wanted a repeat of Galileo waiting for its
4: ride on the space shuttle and then having a hardware fault as a consequence of that. It also saved literally a billion dollars for the program in multiple, not just the cost of the SLS, but the cost to adapt it to launch on what turned out to be a very rough ride on an SLS for a science mission. So NASA made the right call, but it wasn't NASA's call to make. Congress made the right call, but they had to change legislation. Previously, NASA had been mandated by law to launch in the SLS. That changed this year to the right consequence, and NASA was able to to make the right call based on that.
0: We're in our last few moments. What else do you folks want to bring up before we close this conversation?
2: I'll just say that I cannot believe how much has happened in one year. Um, when we started to put down notes of what we would talk about this episode, I was astonished. I mean, I think everyone has found the passage of time a little strange the past couple of years, but um, it certainly feels like the year has gone by quickly and yet so much has happened. I mean, the, the fact that all the Mars arrivals this year, that seems like such a long time ago. So I'm just astonished. I'm imp- impressed at what the world is able to accomplish. I'm amazed at the things that we're learning. It's been such a great year.
4: It just further goes to my feeling that the 2010s were a transition decade in space. And now we're seeing the outcome of that long extended transition where there just wasn't as much happening. And it's going to continue seeing stuff like this over the next few years based on a lot of work that's been happening for more than 10 years. So this is an exciting time to really be on the, out, you know, the, the end period of that long and painful transition.
3: Similar to Kate, I feel that these last couple of years have been really difficult, but I think that space and space exploration does a really good job of providing hope. I don't know about you all, but I feel like we really need that optimism more than ever right now. So it is really great to, I think, stop and reflect. And um, that's what I think all end of the year celebrations do well. So I'm, I'm really glad we did this. Thanks, everyone.
0: Jason Davis will give you the last word.
5: Great year in space exploration, as everyone has just said. And uh, I'm looking forward to 2022. Um, It doesn't let up. As Casey said, it's just the beginning of this exciting decade that's uh, to come. Next year, we've got things like DART reaching its asteroid. Uh, ExoMars is going to launch. Psyche is going to launch. Just more of the same and a a lot of other stuff happening. Um, Let's do it again.
0: Lots to look forward to. I look forward to continuing to work with all of you, my dear colleagues, over this next year at the Planetary Society, you will be seeing great content and great activity from all of them. Thank you so much, Editorial Director Jason Davis, Kate Howells, Communication Strategy and Canadian Space Policy Advisor, Editor Ray Paletta, and Senior Space Policy Advisor, Chief Advocate Casey Dreyer. I look forward to talking to all of you again across the year right here on Planetary Radio as well. Happy New Year, everybody.
2: Thanks, Matt. Happy New Year. Thanks. Happy New Year. Woohoo!
0: It is time for the last What's Up of 2021. So we welcome the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, also the program manager, I think it is, for LightSail 2, the whole LightSail program, actually. That's Bruce Betts. Welcome. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Matt. Welcome to you. (laughs) Thank you. Lots of wonderful holiday wishes from so many of you out there. Thank you, one and all. Here's one from Michael Reitmayer in uh, the state of Washington, where, you know, it does tend to be cloudy. He says, hello from the Pacific Northwest. I'll have to take Bruce's word for his What's Up segment. All I see lately is the great dihydrogen monoxide nebula.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry, I don't don't mention that every week because it doesn't
0: change. Be careful, Michael. You know, watch out for that uh, dihydrogen monoxide. It can be very dangerous if it's in high enough concentrations.
6: (laughs) And if you're underneath it for an extended period of time. So what's up? What's up? We got our last views of the beautiful planetary lineup in the early evening low in the west from lowest and hardest to see, but brightest is Venus up to Saturn and then up to bright Jupiter we got Mercury hanging out with the gang right now, and in fact, it is above Venus for the next week or so, and and the moon, the crescent moon. If you've got your, your crazed low horizon view to the western horizon, you're looking as soon as you can after sunset, look for the moon to pass on the 2nd of January, Venus, on the 3rd, Mercury, on the 4th, Saturn, and on the 5th, Jupiter. Party on. Party on, indeed. Don't miss that meteor shower that's happening. You know, the one with the Q.
0: (laughs) The one you don't want to say the name of?
6: (laughs) The Quadrantids. Ooh, that wasn't bad. That was good. Well well done. I'll leave it at that. It can be one of the best showers of the year, uh, but it tends to have a pretty sharp peak. So check it out. as close to the peak, which is the night of January 2nd to the 3rd and uh, you can stare up and see tens of meteors per hour from a wonderfully dark site. We've got Mars, but Mars will be getting better in the morning later in the, in the year. We move on to this week in space history. Two, no, it's going to be 2022. That would make it three years ago. In 2019, New Horizons did the farthest flyby of an object from Earth ever when it flew by the 50-kilometer diameter Kuiper belt object, Eric Hoth.
0: And I was out there. I was uh, with the crowd at the Applied Physics Lab uh, in Maryland, and it was uh, it was a heck of a great uh, event. We had quite a party. Uh, I thought
6: you, meant you were out there with
0: Eric Hoth. Wow. <laughs> it was a, just a quick visit.
6: And the 120th anniversary of the discovery of Ceres, which now would be the first discovery of a dwarf planet. At the time, it was a planet, and then it became an asteroid, or even occasionally, it was a comet and became a dwarf planet and so it's had a real identity crisis but happy 120th
0: anniversary. I had no idea that it was considered for any period of time as a comet. Well I may have made that part up
6: no it, <laughs> that's what I've read I couldn't find anything concrete on that so you, you might be right uh, Everything else is everything else is true I swear it. Speaking of truth I go on to random space fact at the end of 2021 which you know it is. We have the most craft operating at Mars ever. By my count, 13 of them. Eight orbiters, three rovers, one lander, and one helicopter.
0: <laughs> well done. Well done. I am I was waiting for the five golden rings, of course.
6: That's a, that's a totally different song. I would totally different. <laughs> Shall we move on to the trivia contest? I said, who do we have to thank? For suggesting the planet name Uranus. How do we do, Matt?
0: This was quite a response, a near record response, partly because we heard from a lot of young people who are lucky enough to be in Mr. Chris Midden's sixth grade science class in good old Carbondale, Illinois.
2: Yay. Where, by the way, they are
0: just yeah, they are just over two years from their second total solar eclipse in seven years, because Carbondale. That's where the paths of these two eclipse, eclipses happen to pass each other or cross over each other. So uh, hello, uh, all you uh, boys and girls out there. And uh, hello to Chris, who we uh, got to meet when we were there for the first of those uh, total solar eclipses. I have an entry here, a first-time entry, or at least a first-time winner, from Brian Gott in Ohio. He says who was German astronomer Johann Bodie who suggested calling it Uranus in keeping with the tradition of using names from mythology. William Herschel, who discovered it, we've talked about this before, wanted to name it after King George III. Imagine, says Brian, sending a probe to planet George. (laughs) I don't know. I'd kind of like that, I think. Is he right, though? (laughs) He is indeed correct. Bode came up with the
6: name that was seen elsewhere than... Great Britain is less offensive as Georgia's Georgia's star, uh, named after George III. So eventually Uranus got uh, uh, taken as the name, and we've been discussing pronunciation and making cheap jokes at its expense ever since, (laughs) at least for the English language speakers of the world. And we are not
0: done with those cheap jokes. Uh, We'll have a few in a moment. I thought Uh, not. (laughs) Congratulations, Brian. We are going to send you that beautiful 2022 International Space Station wall calendar. We'll get that in the mail to you uh, very soon from our Pasadena headquarters. Before we get to the bad jokes, uh, Barry Olson, Alberta, Canada, and a bunch of other people said Bode or Bode uh, based... That name, Uranus, on the name of the Greek god of the sky, Uranos, But uh, set upon in New York, astronomer Claude Plimate, old friend of the show, and some other folks, said as all planets before this were named for Roman gods, so it would have been more proper to name the planet Calus, the Roman equivalent of Uranus. Yeah,
6: Uranus, my impression, is sort of a Latinized version of Waranos, and I don't know how to pronounce either. So, yeah, it's it's confusing, but it happened.
0: (laughs) Torsten Zimmer in Germany. Bodhi probably didn't speak English well enough to understand that calling it Uranus would cause countless versions of the same lame joke, forever harming the sincerity of missions to explore the planet. Carlos Perez, also in Germany. I guess I didn't see this episode of Futurama, only the greatest science fiction TV series in history. (laughs) Professor Farnsworth apparently said that in uh, 2620, the name Uranus was finally changed to put a stop to all those third grade jokes. They changed it to (laughs) Eurectum. Well, that'll be
6: interesting to see if that develops.
0: Yes. Well, we'll have to hang around for 600 years to find out. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay, I'll see you there. Norman Cassoon in the UK, the Georgian name did not catch on among European astronomers. In France, Jerome de la Lande called it Herschel, which would kind of be nice. And Louis Poinciné de Sèvres tried Sibylle, the great mother. The Swede, Eric Prosperin, suggested, are you ready for this, Neptune. Yeah, you knew that? That it almost became Neptune, or at least it had a shot?
6: Well, no, that it was suggested.
0: Devin O'Rourke in Colorado. As usual with Dr. B's questions, I learned not just about Bode or Bode, but also limb darkening, the invariable plane, and a value for the internal <laughs> heat flux of Earth 0. 0.075 <laughs> watts per square meter, if you're curious. Thanks for the rabbit holes, Bruce.
6: You're welcome. it's any consolation, I go deep down them myself when I'm coming up with these. uh, (laughs) I was almost late to our recording because I'd ended up in a light sail
0: related rabbit hole. Happy rabbit hole hunting. We'll close this contest with uh, this poem from Gene Lewin in Washington, our our, uh, poet laureate. Day Fairchild, taking the week off. Georgium Sidus was the name chosen by Herschel himself. Alternatives, though, were soon proposed, so George's name was shelved. Neptune, once it made the list, but was not yet to be. Seventy years transpired before everyone could agree. Given the name Uranus, named for Saturn's pop, proposed by Johann Ellert-Bode, his suggestion we would adopt. Oh,
6: Yeah, it does make a nice thematic thing that you've got uh, Saturn as Jupiter's father and Uranus or Waranos as the Greek equivalent Anyway, Greek and Roman miss, but you got father, father, father. Speaking as a father, I like it. Hey, Dad, what do you have for next time? Well, Dad, I've got a simple question, but I've got caveats to try to prevent the trick question confusion. In 2021, how many deep space launches were there? Deep space, defining as to the moon or beyond, and yes, count JWST as one of them. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Launches, not spacecraft. Such a simple question with so many potential confusing uh, places
0: to go. Let's see how uh, people can find uh, other holes to dig themselves into out there. Uh, They have to do that, though, by the 5th of January. January 5th, that's Wednesday, at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer for this one. And you know, it's just the beginning of the year. Let's give away another one of those ISS International Space Station wall calendars. They're they're buttes. They really are. All right, we're through that. It's your contribution now to the best of twenty twenty one. And who would yes. be better to tell us about the status of Lightsail?
6: Lightsail, the Planetary Society solar sail spacecraft, launched in twenty nineteen, is still flying. We're still working with it. I'm still taking pretty pictures when I can. Teams still working to make it sail as efficiently as possible. I think I quoted Charles Dickens in a recent webinar. I'll do it again. It was the best of sailing. It was the worst of sailing in 2021. (laughs) Uh, we really over the summer had some of our best sailing. Where generally, where the solar sailing propulsion is balanced by the atmospheric drag, and typically we lose altitude every day, but we lose less when we're sailing. We actually gained altitude on several days during the summer uh, when, after we'd done some calibration changes of the gyros, basically figured out how to how to sail the spacecraft better, and then. Solar storms started hitting, and uh, those inflate the atmosphere. They heat the upper atmosphere, and that increases the drag. And so it's been rather a drag for the last two or three months. We're uh, fighting it, but losing more altitude than than ever before. So uh, as we always knew, we will end up in a fiery reentry of glorious destruction. Uh, Not sure when, at least several months off but uh, we will keep flying it and doing our best. It's still still working. Nothing new is broken. Uh, we're, we're still going. We're still getting the most of it, and we're still putting our information out there. And we're also work, been working, uh, especially this year, with some upcoming NASA missions that are using solar sails. So Neoscout Scout and Solar Cruiser and ACS-3, which is an future Earth-orbiting solar sail. Neoscout Scout, of course, going to a near-Earth asteroid. And Solar Cruiser going out to Earth-Sun uh, L1 Lagrange point and also going to higher inclination, doing exciting stuff a few years off. But Neoscout Scout will launch on the first launch of SLS. So so whenever that happens, we're looking forward to Neoscout Scout and taking solar sail technology to the next level.
0: Quite a legacy for LightSail and all of you who've been involved in this project. And that, of course, includes all the members of the Planetary Society and everybody who gave to uh, the LightSail program. So uh, good on all of you.
6: I just want to once again thank everyone who supported this. This was completely supported by individual donations uh, really un, unprecedented in, in space how, how much uh, support we got over the 10 years, 11 years now of the program, uh, well over $7 million, which is still a, operating on a, a shoestring budget for a spacecraft, but uh, enough to make it work, and uh, we appreciate it.
0: So I got to ask, because the boss, Bill Nye, asked me to, what's the story with that one boom arm that uh, maybe malfunctioned a little bit?
6: Uh, So we have four booms that are metal. uh, They're made of an alloy called Elgiloy. They're four meter long booms that pull the sails out. And when we first deployed in 2019, one of those booms didn't deploy all the way. And over the first two to four months of the mission, we found the sail moved enough we could see a bend in the boom. So there's a Z-shaped bend in the boom. The good news is uh, it has not particularly changed since the first few months of the mission. So we're still in a
0: stable sailing configuration. I think we've satisfied Bill's uh, request. And I think we've uh, finished another uh, week, the last one, as I said, of 2021 of What's Up.
6: Excellent. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky and think about 2022 and all the cool space stuff that's going to happen. Thank you.
0: Good night. And we'll be reporting all of it to you, including here on uh, What's Up with the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts. Uh, Looking forward to another year with you, Bruce.
6: And I with you, Matt. Thanks for big fun once again
0: this last year. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members. Thank you, one and all. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Thank you to you guys too, and Happy New Year, everyone, at Astro.